Hello, and welcome to Character in Action, the official podcast for the Seven Degrees of Change Foundation. My name is Matthew J. Norcross, and I'll be your host as we have the privilege of talking with decision makers from our community and beyond who are living examples of character traits of the seven degrees of change, which are empathy, respect, responsibility, fairness, trustworthiness, caring, and citizenship. These guests are willing to come in and explain how they live and show others by example to be a phoenix. These character traits serve as a basis of a book series I authored called The Phoenix, as well as a correlating character education curriculum developed in association with High Point University. Today's guest is Colonel Chris Wagner, an Associate Director of Operations for the Air National Guard. Among other positions he's held over the years are Vice President of Operations at NCI Information Systems and Director of Aerospace Programs at American Business Development Group. He is also a graduate of the University of San Francisco, earning a bachelor's degree in business administration, and together with his wife Suzanne, they have three adult children who are all married and they're both expecting to be grandparents. Colonel Swainer joins us now from our nation's capital. Chris, we appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. You're here because you're a living example of character in action. Before we get started, please tell our listeners more about yourself as well as your career. All right. Uh, I'm 59 years old and uh, grew up in uh, I guess I had a life-changing action when I was three. My father died, and uh, we moved out to Arizona from Indiana to be closer to my mother's mother. And uh, so that's how I ended up growing up in Phoenix uh, back in the 1970s. Went to college in San Francisco, joined uh, the Air Force, the Air Force ROTC then, and uh, was first a navigator because I had a scholarship. Uh, that I wanted to be a pilot, but I took the navigator slot for what they paid me, and then I ended up uh, flying out of uh, Pope Air Force Base and kind of went all over the world, most of the world, didn't make it over to the Far East, but uh, lots of different missions and, and uh, great experiences then, but the best thing was I met my wife in Chapel Hill, and uh, so we got married back in 1990, uh, got sent away right away after that over to Desert Shield. While I was there, I, I did get selected for pilot training, came back just before Desert Storm started. I uh, went to pilot training, did very well there, was first down in my class, but that was 1992 when uh, the peace dividend was breaking out. So I didn't get my fighter like I wanted, fighter aircraft, and uh, instead went into rescue. So did that for a while um, and did a lot of time over in Saudi Arabia and Turkey, and then uh, ended up after that getting assigned to uh, the Pentagon at the National Guard Bureau as a staff tour, and then kind of stayed there in various capacities, uh, eventually becoming the director of operations and later retiring out of the Pentagon and went into uh, commercial business there. I kind of needed enough money to get three kids through college and all, and so uh, retired. Stayed in the D.C. area, as they always say, you have the golden handcuffs there or in the land of jobs. And so you know, I did that, uh, and I've done that. Well, well, did that in a commercial capacity for seven years and came back with the government in 2015 to be the associate director of air operations, which means I'm a civilian 
assistant to the director of operations, who was uh, currently Brigadier General Allison Miller, uh, and I serve in that capacity presently. So that's kind of the career stuff, the formative things in that career. Uh, like I said, fortunately, meeting my wife, uh, having kids, building family and doing that, but uh, being deployed all over the world, you know, seeing a lot of interesting places, uh, and then losing uh, friends in aircraft accidents or terrorist activities, things like that, uh, were also very formative. And so they... Um, help you understand what is important in life. And I hope I've stuck with those things. So that's kind of a quick background of family and career and that sort of thing. Hobbies tend to be focused around uh, the family that I've done, my kids with sports and music, and especially a lot of activities with church and school. And so I've kind of lived that life and that's who I am today. Great story. So, um, how do you define character? I think we can all have a general sense of what a person is like, both their uh, attitude, their disposition, their beliefs, their temperament, and kind of how that person acts all that out of the world. You know, we tend to say uh, either somebody has a great character or unfortunately has a bad character, or maybe they have a character problem, is well, Categorizing it at that if uh, there's misbehavior or bad behavior, uh, it's that way. But yes, if, we, if you look at all those various attributes of the individual, including their beliefs and especially their temperament sort of things and how that plays out in their worldview and how they interact with others through the world, I, I, that's how I see people's character. It's actually a good definition, that's for sure. So please tell us a story of witnessing either in person or in history who was a true phoenix, someone who was a role model by leading by example and making the world a better place. Thinking about that, there's uh, I had uh, a an advisor to a club I was in, Key Club, which is the youth service affiliate of Kiwanis International. And uh, our advisor was a... Uh, a guy named Wayne Anthony's still around. Uh, I've had got to see him a few weeks ago, but um, a lot of times in your life, especially adults, uh, can be either very formative in saying how you don't want to follow what they do. Uh, it, it's a lot less common to say, yeah, this is kind of a person who did wonderful things like that. And uh, although I don't, I haven't followed exactly his path or anything, what he did was help me. Uh, and I consider him a a phoenix in the aspect of he invested heavily in other people, not in any dollar sense, but in uh, building character for people, helping them grow past being kind of, you know, dorky high school students to state potential in people and helping to build that and, and doing that uh, not for his own sake, but all the way through others. He did that through building leadership. We did a lot of service and we, and we had a lot of fun too in that, but it was a way in high school when it's very easy for people to get off track. I got on a very good track. I learned a lot. I, I traveled, I uh, participated in a lot of leadership events and things. And, and that was because of uh, his mentoring to me and helping shape me. 
did I have some attributes or character that was good for that? Yeah. I'm sure I made mistakes and stuff. And right. he tolerated that and, and uh, helped form that. But yeah, he's one of the few adults in my life otherwise that put so much into me and never, uh, you know, never asked a dollar, never did anything like that and, and was very beneficial. So that is somebody to me who's not just rising on their own, what you you hit a certain point in life and then you're really trying to help others rise in their life, especially when they're have significant troubles or whatever, and then you can help them overcome that. It's a great story. Now, please share a moment that stands out in your mind, something big or even the slightest gesture. That was a transformative Phoenix moment for you, one where you know you have significant impact on an individual's life or a group of people. Uh, there was a lot when I was thinking about this, and and uh, there was a woman named Cheryl Maloney uh, who went to my church. She was, I don't know if you know what a thalidomide baby is. Back in uh, the 50s, there were women who were having uh, so much trouble with their pregnancies in terms of morning sickness and stuff, there was a medication called thalidomide that they thought was very good for that doctors and medical community. And it was administered. And unfortunately, what it did was create a lot of people with um, significant uh, malformations uh, in their body. Specifically, they tended to have hands that were at their shoulders that had no arms things like that. That's what this woman, Cheryl, who has since passed, uh, had. And I would see her and uh, she had a cart. Uh, she worked full time. Uh, she had uh, her own money, life, and a van. She did everything with her feet. It was a very uh, impressive life considering when you think of others and, you know, or we think of ourselves and, you know, get down, woe is me, all this terrible. And, and the old saying, you can always see something someone who has a harder time in life than you. She was that. I just thought of going through life in that situation. And she was a, a wonderful, warm, pleasant person. And anyway, uh, she went to my church. And then, uh, lo and behold, here she was in her mid to late 50s and had never been baptized. And so she made the step to ask to be baptized. The part that was very moving for me in that was that uh, she approached me and asked me to be one of the people to help carry her down into the baptismal pool and help baptize her, which was uh, an honor beyond anything I could say. I've done it myself. I've been in the baptismal pool with my sons. I've done a lot of that, but to be part of somebody else's life and help carry him in that aspect reminds me of you know numerous Bible stories, especially people who had uh, severe physical ailments, uh, and to think that somebody could, uh, on what I consider a, a simple gesture on my part, I mean, it, 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 you have to be very gentle in myself. And another gentleman took her down the steps in the water, could have been very slippery. And for her was um, very trusting because you were in a pool. She had no way if she were to slip or something, uh, you know, she would go under the water and she had no way with no arms to be able to save herself in that aspect. So she trusted me to do that for her and at a significant time to make a life decision uh, for a baptism. So 
was an extreme honor for me. Uh, and that, that's very touching to me to know. And that's why I said when you talk about something like the slightest gesture for a significant time in her life and for eternity to make that choice and to let me be part of that uh, was a, a Phoenix moment because it, it's one of those situations where you think you get more out of it than the person could ever imagine. You know, they're asking you a favor and you go that I'm getting so much greater benefit out of this than just physically caring for her. And uh, that was an, an amazing moment for me. Yeah, definitely sounds amazing. That's for sure. So let's talk about respect for a moment. In the first episode of this podcast, I interviewed military veteran and former Green Beret Christian Castelli, who at the time was running for Congress here in North Carolina. And I mentioned in my first question to him that he has a long history of serving in the military. And you know, as well as I do, that as he does, rather, that one of the core tenets of serving in the armed forces, especially the Air National Guard, is respect. How do you define the trait of respect as an officer in the military? And the military is a, kind of a place that you can, uh, or most people would attribute with lots of rules, and right. it does. It has lots of rules. It's meant to structure behavior in a particular way to go do a particular job. Uh, the way you do that in combat may be different than what you would do at home in garrison, as we would say. But the reality is respect is something kind of above and beyond merely following the rules, because what you can do is abide by all the rules and still be disrespectful, demeaning, condescending to people. And so past that, you have to have something that helps structure your element of respect for people. Uh, some of that is, you know, I, I think as you become a parent, you can start to see people at a different light right? as raising your own children or uh, through your marriage to think of another individual or other family members. Those kind of help illuminate. But I, I think, and for me, um, the golden rule, uh, Luke 6, 31, you know, which is do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, which will also came from Deuteronomy, which is a, a calling force and, and a better aspect to say that you can now project on other people the same thing you would want for you. And so for respect, none of us wants to be treated like an idiot or right. felt to be demeaning anything else like that. And so how, especially when you're training someone or act uh, or asking them to perform in a particular manner, especially in highly stressful situations where you may be in extreme cold or heat, you may be tired, you may be hungry, and you're trying to instruct and bring things out of somebody and very easy to get uh, in a demanding, maybe even demeaning role of somebody. And so... How do you view that person as an individual and how do you base the value on that? What principle do you use to do that? And so that's what to me says respect, which is even when people are messing up, they're underperforming in that. How can exactly. you not treat them in a way that is, is so destructive to them, but doesn't mean you're, you 
sacrifice the standards that you needed, it means that you find a way to say, this person still has value as an individual and not go out to crush them, but to go, okay, here's what you messed up and here's how we're going to do it better next time. So that's how I see respect. That's a good way to put it. Now, let's move on to responsibility. In addition to being a husband and a father and being in a leadership position in your church for many years, you've had an impressive military career with substantial responsibilities. Your current position is the Associate Director of Operations, but you've also had other positions in the Air National Guard, like advising the AFA35, which is responsible for developing mission directives, operational concepts and doctrine reviews, being the Chief of Deployments Division and the Mobility Division. Those are just some examples of the multiple responsibilities you've had during your time of service. Tell me more about those positions and others you've held over the years. Well, one thing you see, the military is different than most other careers. Uh, In the civilian company I was in, they felt like they needed a new president. They just go out on the street, not in a pejorative sense, but uh, they go out to be able to find somebody. They just hire them and bring them in the company, which they may have had no experience either in that particular company or the line of work. Uh, but for whatever reasons, a company could see that. The military is different in that you need to, well, you as an officer, you start as a lieutenant, as an enlisted person, you start at, you know, a private or an airman, those sorts of things. And you have to work your way up in the organization for many years with many different assignments to get it back. So for me, the first 12 years of my career were associated with flying and what we call in the military flying the line, which is you are the line pilots, you're the ones who are going to go out and fight the wars, especially in the Air Force. I don't know if you know, uh, the enlisted people support the officers. The officers still do the fight as opposed to the Army, where the officers are training the enlisted force and the enlisted force is going out fighting and the officers who may accompany them, but they're really trying to employ the enlisted to get the job done. So kind of a different focus in that First 12 years of flying, both as a navigator, then as a pilot, going all over the world to uh, some really outstanding places and some pretty unsavory places helps kind of build that core understanding. So you're out there doing the job. Above that, uh, now you've built skills that will help lead in who runs the organization, the officers and the senior enlisted, and they have to count on that, that basic set of core capabilities that they have to be able to do. I I will tell you one of the jobs I had that was very good at a unit level down flying was I was a life support officer. Now we call it air crew flight equipment. Mm -hmm. And that was a job where we had to keep people's helmets and parachutes and survival gear and all this stuff ready on the aircraft and and also what they were in particular. And so uh, that's production. You need airplanes that are ready to go. You need equipment that is operable and inspected. And so I had uh, seven enlisted people working for me and some uh, of different ranks. Some who wanted to be there. Uh, unfortunately, some of them I had to, uh, I'll say kick out of the military. That's not a very glamorous way of saying it, but some just uh, did not fit and didn't adapt to the military lifestyle. 
So you learn about that as well as the equipment and the specialties and, and the people and how to employ. Those sort of formative tasks helped me as I moved up in the organization. And this assignment, uh, the first assignment that wasn't flying was working in the Pentagon, which is a, <laughs> you can imagine that's top military place. That's uh, There's always a lot of movies that try to portray the Pentagon. That's not really the way it goes, but right. uh, the, the reality is somewhat uh, more complex in what powers the Pentagon, money like anywhere else. So you've got to learn how to build programs and run programs, which a program is taking a military requirement and matching it with money. That sounds very simple, but it's also very, very complex. And so that's my first assignment in the Pentagon was running programs, a rescue program. And for instance, a lot of the equipment that the Guard had when I got assigned to the National Guard Bureau as a regular Air Force guy was we couldn't deploy because we didn't have equipment that was satisfactory to be able to take over to war. And so I would set out to fix that, re-engineering helicopters, getting defense systems on aircraft, adequate um, weapons, and same things for pararescue men, all their personal equipment, things like this, and then built upon that. And so those were foundational things I was doing as a major. Then I moved into some of these other positions that you talk about, which become higher level, and, and you have to come out of your area, and you continue kind of building the scope at which you're working and the programs get more expensive and more complex. Uh, but if you ever lose sight of where you came from, in other words, you're doing all those jobs, the, the sort of pyramid of growth where you think the pinnacle is at the, at the Pentagon, that should be flipped upside down and you really should be supporting those people out the field. And if you right. lose that hunger for making life better for the people, because if you were out in the field and you thought things didn't work right, you know, there's bad equipment, bad tactics, bad all. then you need, it's your responsibility as you move up in the chain to be able to fix those things for the young lieutenants and airmen and privates and, and all those type of folks who are really out there doing the day-to-day -day job that, that I was once doing. And so that's the levels of flexibility and everything that went up, like I said, to be able to operate, but uh, an interesting fact is, so in college, I went to the University of San Francisco. My undergraduate degree was in accounting. You wouldn't think that would have anything to do with uh, flying air and operating aircraft. Well, I learned a lot about money with accounting, and then I got a, an MBA uh, focused on aviation. Those aspects helped teach me how to chase a dollar through the Pentagon, which is not an easy system. And it taught me how to be able to build programs, go out there and get money for very, uh, as I joke, not sexy programs like rescue and, and C-130s and things like this that did not get money. And you get, you have to find ways to go get that. And I was able to do that and to really affect a lot of change. And I look at the uh, equipment that's being employed now based on a lot of the work that I did many years ago. And it's, it's satisfying in that aspect. And I still, uh, help to make a lot of changes for the military that do that. So that's, if you want to talk about responsibilities, tremendous amount of responsibility, but if you keep sight on the people who are out there who need to do the job and who are putting their lives on the line and the families that are trusting that we as leaders are going out and giving equipment that is 
Um, it can't be the gold-plated thing, but how um, how sufficient is it to be able to get the job done that we need it to do at the same time that you're thinking about the safety and and longevity of the people who are employing those big responsibilities, that's for sure. So let's move on to fairness. How does fairness tie into not just the Air National Guard, but serving in any branch of the U.S. military? And fairness, <laughs> funny, when I read this, I, I think that in college, I had a professor in statistics, a question 100 on it, every test, he gave it free. He goes, you will get one free choice. And the question is, is life fair? And the answer is no. If you learn nothing else in this course, I hope you learn that. And so that is both humorous and, and like most humor, has a lot of applicability to the world. And so we all want to think that the world is fair when it's not. But when it's our turn to help make it fair or more fair, what do we do? And so in my mind, fairness really, we have a series of rules. Hopefully they're developed well and they're logical and, and understandable in everybody. And then one of the key things you watch is, are those rules and uh, structures that we do, are they employed equally to everybody? Because that's one of the biggest senses of fairness is you go, this person did something stupid or whatever, right. and they were punished. And then the next one who comes along who's, a golden boy or the, you know, gal or whatever you're going to say. And they didn't get punished. And everybody knows that. And so, for instance, in the commercial world, I took over an organization. A guy died very suddenly and I got placed in there. Everybody loved him. He was a great guy and I loved him too. Uh, unfortunately, he didn't. He wasn't very strict in, in managing people in terms of how equally he was applying a lot of the rules. And so uh, I had to go through and unfortunately fire a lot of people. I tried to give them corrective action, but they were very accustomed to the way that business had been done. And I fired people. Then you would think that that would have hurt morale because people don't want somebody to be fired. But in fact, morale went up tremendously because what people were very excited about is there was an application of the rules in some cases that have been used against them, but were not placed against certain people who were sort of thought of as untouchable. They were right. top members of the organization. Instead, the staff loved that the people who were not producing, that, that the members, the other members of the staff had to go take up their workloads and didn't get any extra money or anything. They now got to see that, hey, we're actually going to apply the rules fairly here's the employee handbook, here is your job and your responsibilities. You do those, you will be fairly compensated. And in many cases, I try to get bonus awards or things like that. But the key thing they understood is at the end of the day, they go home, they're not taking home work or doing something that somebody else who's sloughing off doesn't do. And so it was very beneficial. So you have to give equal application of rules. You need to have promotions on merit. You need to have bonuses or other pay factors, if you have that in the private industry or in the military, we can give time off awards and things like that. But they need to be done justly and equally amongst all people. And because you will always have some people who produce more than others, that's the reality. And but are you 
equally applying the rules to everybody. That, that's a great way to put it. I never thought that before. Now, let's move on to trustworthiness. The Air National Guard, and this is some important info to our listeners, is a federal military reserve force for the U.S. Air Force. And the latter's website says that an airman must be a, quote, person of integrity, courage, and conviction, unquote. And they must be willing to control their impulses and exercise, cur- and exercise courage, honesty, and accountability in order to do what is right, even when no one is looking. And if you think about it, honesty and accountability have a lot to do with trustworthiness. Am I correct? Oh, absolutely. Couldn't say it better than that statement, Ed. And just to go over, so the Air National Guard is a part of the reserve component of the Air Force. The Air Force has core values, integrity first, service above self, excellence in all we do. And you try to inculcate those not just by great, you know, buzzword bingo, but instead what you really need to do is add a foundational part of what the organization is doing. You've laid that out in terms of accountability, um, courage, honesty, especially when no one is looking. Uh, The interesting part about courage, you know, a lot of people think someone's courageous or brave in an act. And what you find most of the time in that case is they're scared just as much as anyone else. And that's not you know, failing in the light or, or, or being afraid while you're doing something. It's actually uh, embracing what you know to be right and doing it despite all the other things that you're up against. Honesty you know, and accountability are very difficult to come about in this world of, you know, people fail you all the time. So you can't fail yourself or others. And sometimes you will have to eat a bunch of humble pie when it comes to time to admit that you did something wrong or you failed in something. It's it's interesting when you listen to business, they're like, we didn't try enough, we didn't fail when we should have tried something unique. But a lot of people are very much afraid of failure. And so how do you do it? You have to do it honestly and forthrightly, but you can't be afraid to go out and do some of those things that will cause you have that. So uh, to have failure, but to be honest with it. And I'll tell you something about trustworthiness. If you ever see you know, movies and basic training will show, hey, well, everybody's got your stuff. You're living in this communal environment. And the worst thing you find in those is a thief because everybody's trusting that the few things that they have at that time are safe. And I know at work, there's a lot of times I leave my wallet on my desk. And I, yes, I have an office and people know, but I never once had a concern that anybody in my organization would ever steal something. You go, Okay, they need be, you know, they have a job, they have, they're well compensated, that, but it's also part of the, the trust that you have to share with your workforce to know who is in there and, and who they are and what you do. We get a lot of new people and you have to understand who they are and all. But like I say, I, I, I don't have to think twice about would somebody, you know, go in and take the money out of my wallet if I have to leave it on my desk. So. Yeah, I'm glad that I can have trustworthiness in people, but not everybody's perfect with that. We all try, but right. anyway, yes. That's a great story. So mm-hmm. let's move on to caring. On 9-11, you witnessed an attack on the Pentagon, and that put you in a unique situation, in a position of authority 
how did you use this as an opportunity to care for those around you at that time? Uh, and I could still, I could tell you, I, I, our whole building shook. And I ran over to my window that uh, we, we were watching all the uh, Twin Towers there being hit. And I had just been in uh, New York City at the base of the Twin Towers on the Sunday prior to that. So 9-9, the night of September. Uh, so that was very fresh in my mind, saw all that. But um, knowing the dangers of being in, the, in a big building uh, where in many cases with even a truck bomb or something, you are very vulnerable. As soon as I heard or, or felt really our building shook and I ran over to the window, I could see debris, metal debris coming up from the Pentagon. I could see just the top of the Pentagon and wow. debris and smoke coming up. And oh. uh, at that point, I said, we got to get out of this building. And my boss is like, hey, hang on, everybody. We don't really know what that is. And I told him, oh, I said, I think that. And I said, I think the truck bomb just went off at the Pentagon. He's like, no way. And I had him over to the window and he saw it coming up. And then I said, we have got to get everybody out of this building. And so then they, uh, an announcement came over the building to evacuate. The trouble is in that I'm a military guy now. I was in my blues uniform, which is a kind of a business dress looking thing. And right. although you have presented this as I was caring a lot for others. I could tell you that one of the worst feelings of that was I, I can't go do anything about this. I'm actually now somebody who has to be saved. I'm not the one saving it, especially being in rescue. You know, we have a saying, these things we do that others may live. And so you're sacrificing yourself in a way to be able to do that. And, and people that have had situation. Now I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not somebody on the ground. There were people already, you know, uh, giving first aid at the Pentagon or other places. Those active, uh, a good friend of mine ended up later that night at one of the Twin Towers, rescued a woman out of there, you know, that kind of stuff. Those are amazing stories. Instead, I hear, I see that. And the best thing I can do is stay out of the way of all the other first responders and get myself out. So in that case, we assembled people. We just found a way to get everybody out. And not just me. I mean, other people were clearing out of the building, making sure, because there are some people who are not able-bodied, but we were able to, everybody got out of the building. I got to a metro station, went down, and a friend of ours gave us a ride. I got to my car, but I went immediately to get my kids from school. You couldn't call anybody. I got my kids from school, and then I went uh, over to our church to be able to stay if we'd heard because I knew a lot of people were in the Pentagon. I, I worked in Crystal City, which was a, a 10, 15 minute walk away uh, in a high rise building. And, and, but I knew people were there. I was supposed to be in there later that morning uh, and wasn't there, but it was a matter of getting my kids, making sure everything at the church and people we knew. And then it was getting home to my wife because we had just moved out to uh, the house we're in now. And so, but like I said, there were no phones that you could call on anything. And so a lot of that was making sure I secured all my people. And I was in uniform when I went to pick up my kids and everybody. That kind of spooked some people and mm -hmm. things like that. And so, but yeah, in that case, I wish, uh, you know, I guess we sort of, I don't want to say fantasize about being able to be somewhere on the ground to help because I knew people are in the medical community and they were right on the ground treating people and, uh, 
you know, one of the key things we could do was the next day on the 12th, we went back to work. Now it took like two hours to get into work. And then we walked over and, and we were on a, there's just across the freeway, there's a, a mall. We went up in the parking lot to see where they were fighting the fire and, and things like that and walking, you know, past other buildings where the smoke is pouring on there. But that simple act of going to work the next day and people who were going to work in the Pentagon into a building that's on fire, we had to show that, yes, you can attack us, but you're not going to beat us. And sometimes that simple statement alone uh, is how you can show for others in a kind of respect or care to be able to say, hey, we recognize you were injured or in some cases for families, you never were killed, but we don't give up. We get back to work and we're going to go take care of this. And that's, you have to have heart to make that happen because that was a very difficult thing. And it was difficult for weeks on end after that because of just lots of false alarms. And, and we've had other things in this area of snipers who were specifically shooting at people and there've been a lot of safety and other concerns. That's what living in the national capital region entails, let alone the traffic and craziness and everything else. But yeah, also going to work the next day um, was a strong statement. It's about as strong as it could be because I can't be up there hoisting a fire hose or anything else like that. That's a great story. Well, I'll tell you what, we're about out of time, but um, we got one more question and I will let you close with the um, with a comment. So the last question I'm going to ask is about citizenship. What does it mean to you in a leadership position in the military, as well as a husband and a father, to be a good citizen? So I'm going to start with the end of the question first, which is husband, father, those type things. Um, you need to take care of your family. You need to help take care of others and people and and it's sometimes it's as simple as keeping up your house or your neighborhood. Uh, do you, you know, are you keeping it neat, clean, so it's safe for others as well as, uh, you know, a, a welcoming type place and others and, and finding ways to give back in your community. You do other things like vote and pay taxes and um, those sorts of basic citizenry things that you should be doing. Uh, and then when you go up, leadership position above that, you have to say, who or what are we needing to take care of that is not being taken care of by the community at large, whether it's a, a government organization or whatever. And, and so you get involved in volunteer activities or I'm active in my church and still helping with that because so, as I always joke, I'm worth every penny they pay me, which that's what volunteer work is, is you're giving your heart to something and putting in, and you have to find a way to get back, and you have to uh, hold that up. Uh, I mean, there are enough people with enough problems out there. We'll never solve all the human circumstances, but we have to um, have to approach as best as we can to go help others, especially if you're able-bodied and you have the wherewithal to do that. It's incumbent on you to be able to help support others. Before we close, please share with us some thoughts on how we can bring character back into our culture. And character, I, I think a lot of, uh, 
we have been so self-oriented in everything we do. I mean, if you look at what was the the focus many years ago, which was self-esteem and, you know, how do we build up people's self-esteem? And we got into an entire age of, you know, you've heard it. We all kind of laugh of getting participation trophies and all that because right. we want people to feel good about themselves. That's an empty thought. And the trouble is you you don't build any character doing that. You, you do need to think of others, their their circumstances and all, but we, we don't make excuses for bad behavior and that kind of stuff. Instead, what we need to do is you create academically rigorous programs for people in school. You go ahead and focus on what I would call when you're talking about how to be a citizen. We don't talk much about cultural esteem. What do we hold up? Because you'll hear people talk about they want other people to have all these uh, traits, you know, such as, you know, they're kind, loving, forgiving, uh, they're generous and all this. And then you look and they don't do that themselves. So we have to say, it's good. I want you to take care of yourself. And then you need to start to grow from that out to others. And character is what you're going to have to bring into, but you also develop your character as you get exposed to these and you take responsibility for actions. There are those who are, you know, like I said, due to physical or other limitations are just not going to be able to do that. But a lot of people, we don't expect much from them. Or what we do talk about is their self-esteem and how are we going to build them up and say, we need to say, no, you need to be, as you've spoken, you need solid character. You need to be an active and, uh, beneficial citizen to everyone around you. You, as a leader, uh, need to, as Simon Sinek in his book, you know, uh, other leaders let others eat first, I think, or that's a rough order of what he said, something, but, you know, that we are, you have grown and developed, and now you need to help others do that, and that is going to help. That's your character playing out, because a lot of times we are saying, oh, this was a character building exercise or something. And sometimes we use that humorously or, or farcically, but the reality is we need to focus on that and say, your character isn't just so you look good in the shower. Your character is so you can go affect the world in a positive manner. And so from a, in most cases, religious, I'll make it specifically Christian aspect, you are supposed to do that to the benefit of others and the glorification of God. And that will help improve your character in the meantime. Deep words spoken. Chris, thank you for joining us today and thank you for your service. It was an honor and a privilege. Privilege, rather. I enjoyed it tremendously and I appreciate your time, Matt.